Good morning. Um, so, I'm Don Reed. I'm married to Pastor Reed. <laughs> I don't ever call him that. Um, my family has been with HO Church since 2001. We moved here from Austin, Texas to be a part of H2O Church. So we've been here for a long time. And um, I was excited when John asked me um, if I would share my salvation story because I had just realized in January that um, I became a Christian 35 years ago in January. And when he asked me that, I said, oh, which salvation? There's been so many. Um, Google uses words like lifeline, rescue, help, preservation, redemption, deliverance as synonyms for salvation. I actually like better the words from that song that we just sang, where I was chased. Walls were kicked down. And that's how I feel about my salvation story. Um, life itself, my life in itself, has required a lot of lifelines. And um, just to let you know, I am quite a talker, but I am not a speaker. <laughs> so I am really nervous up here. And as much as I would just like to be able to sit one-on-one -on -one with you and just share my story, I wrote it, and it's probably going to sound like I wrote it, and it's a speech. Um, but that just keeps me on track because it's already way over time <laughs> because I'm a talker. Okay. But um, in January 1984, that was the first time that I remembered being rescued by Jesus. And that's the snapshot of my journey with him that I want to share with you today. I was 23 years old, and I had just graduated from college. And growing up in my family, um, we occasionally attended church, um, but when my parents would get frustrated with the rules, they would switch churches and then even converted to another denomination and pretty soon stopped attending altogether. I stayed loosely involved with a youth group in high school and a Catholic co-ed fraternity in college. But my understanding of Christ was so non-existent that I remember being at a youth group retreat over Easter weekend and weeping at the cruelty of the crucifixion, asking why this horrible, inhumane act took place and hearing only for the sins of the world. That did not feel like a reasonable explanation to me. It made no sense. And honestly, I didn't give it much thought after that. My college years were filled with classes, parties, lots of parties, and a growing intense longing to be loved. A longing I set out to fill any way that I could. I didn't date much in high school or college, not by my choosing. And as my longing increased, so did my pursuit to fill my loneliness with casual, physical relationships, always hoping that they would turn into something more meaningful and long-lasting. But that didn't happen. In my belief that I was not worth the time, easily discardable and unattractive grew and grew. In December of 1983, I was still living in Lubbock, Texas. I went on a work trip to San Antonio and coincidentally ran into an old college friend in a bar and spent the rest of the weekend with him. I made plans to revisit him over New Year's, 
But when I got there, something had changed. I felt the cold shoulder, the rejection, the I wish you had never come. And my heart ached with that very familiar feeling of deep, unfulfilled longing and rejection and drowned my pain at the bar we were at till I was throwing up in the parking lot. I sobbed and sobbed as my friend listened to my confused and heartbroken words of despair and pain. He didn't say much except this. Things are different now because I'm different now. I got saved three weeks ago. I don't really know a lot about Christianity, but I think it's something you should look into. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was a Christian. I had gone to church for years, been involved with Catholic groups, even when my parents turned away, been confirmed and even trained as a Eucharistic minister. No answers there. But somehow I felt inside that there was inner peace, hope, longing fulfilled in God. But how? I never felt that the church, I never felt that in the churches I had attended. A couple days later, I received a phone call from a lady named Hope. She had gotten a call from my friend in San Antonio who asked her to call me because he felt I needed help. And she asked if I'd like to come to her church on Sunday. I said, sure, thinking, why not? There has got to be some solution to my sadness and despair, and maybe it was in God. But again, how? So on Sunday, I met Hope at her small church and coincidentally ran into a woman there that I had worked with on campus and absolutely adored, Pat. I loved Pat. She was an older woman and had been so kind to me throughout my college years. And seeing her here at this church was comforting in what felt like a very unfamiliar and different church atmosphere. Pat and her husband invited me for lunch at their house after church and we talked a little bit about church. I honestly don't remember much about those details, and only in hindsight do I see the pieces that were being laid to prepare me for what was to come. My job as a merchandiser involved a lot of driving in West Texas. So Monday morning, I headed out to make my calls on my customers, and at the Texas-New Mexico border, a woman suddenly pulled out on the highway, not seeing my car, and I crashed head-on into her driver's side. No seatbelt, 55 miles per hour. It was not a pretty scene. I was transported by ambulance to the hospital and miraculously checked out okay. Both arms in slings and a lot of bruises, but nothing broken. A man who had witnessed the accident on this empty New Mexico highway brought his wife to the hospital, and they stayed with me until I, picked, until I was picked up hours later by my boss. They cared for me, helped me to the bathroom, consoled me as the seriousness of what could have been settled in. How did I survive that? I didn't have time to slow down or swerve. I just plunged full force into her car, and here I am. I was never able to connect with that couple again, even though I tried hard to find them to send flowers as a thank you. It was like they didn't exist. Hmm, coincidence? Divine help, a lifeline. More characters in this story of God's pursuit of my life. That week, my new friend Hope 
and Pat organized meals for me and helped me retrieve my belongings from my totaled car and also took the careful opportunity to ask me two very important questions. What do you think would have happened to you if you had died? How certain are you that you would have gone to heaven? I had stared the reality of death and dying in the face three days earlier, so that question hit really hard. I reflected over my life. I wasn't a bad person. I believed in God. I had tried to make church part of my life, but I also knew deep down that I had chosen to do things that weren't very moral, and I felt so empty and desperate, and I had absolutely no idea what would happen to me if I had died. Had I been good enough in this life? Believed enough? Confessed enough? What exactly does it take to go to heaven? Can you ever be certain, or is life a crapshoot, and you hope for the best? But that week, hope showed me God's plan for rescuing me, for redemption, for help, for deliverance, salvation. Not just for the sins of the world, but for my sin, my pain, my way of filling that void, Jesus. His death on the cross was not senseless. It was extreme love demonstrated to me personally. That day, Jesus looked me right in the heart and said, you matter. You are worth it. My death and resurrection was to give you life here and eternally. I have been pursuing you because I love you and I am what you have been searching for. On January 15, 1984, I chose Jesus. I knelt at my bed and read aloud a little prayer in a booklet Hope had given me called the Five Spiritual Absolutes. For me, it is clear as the day, as I said I do to Steve six years later. That's my story. Thank you, Don. That was really well written and communicated. Um, I felt like I was right there with you during your story. And how encouraging to hear how God just used regular people like Pat and Hope and that couple in your life, the trajectory of your life has changed as a result of God using um, individuals and how you've responded to, Lord, to the Lord over the years. So thank you for sharing this morning. Well, um, we are starting on this new series titled Creed, okay? So I am going to start by doing an interpretive dance of the top five Creed billboard hits, okay? Yes, with my arms wide open to take you higher, okay? I admit... I admit, H2O in Ohio, we did Creed songs during the three-week period that they were cool, okay? <laughs> and then after that, we refused to acknowledge that time, that it never had happened. So we're going to talk about um, the, 
some of the main truths of Scripture here, and our hope is that with this series, for those of you that would say you're a Jesus follower, that this would help you get more grounded in your faith. For those of you that are not, that this would help you learn, like, what is the difference? Like, what does Christianity really teach, and how is it distinct from other things that are out there? Um, I've been to Europe a number of times, and I was talking to this young Dutch guy, and for those of you that have met the Dutch, they're very forward and really blunt, and and sometimes it's painful. You talk to them, and some of the things they say, you get used to it after a little while, but we were talking, and, and we were talking about the Bible, and he said, hey, one thing that I've noticed about you Americans is that you don't know the Bible. And like, we've grown up with that, and it came off of a statement where I said, hey, it seems like you really know Scripture really well. And he's like, well, most of us do, because we actually grew up with it, and we studied it in school. And he said, I never understood that about you Americans. It's like, this is arguably the most important piece of literature in history that's informed cultures, and even your own government, and your, and your culture, and your society, and you don't know it. And I was like, well, um, you see... I'm trying to somehow make an excuse for America, you know, like, well, you know, yeah, nice try. And, I, and I'm like, well, you know, we have this the separation of church and state is really strong. And so if we teach scripture or if there's conversation about that in school, at times it could be, you know, viewed as, hey, you're proselytizing or you're, you're kind of putting this faith forward. And he was like, that's just stupid. He said, "That's stu- you Americans are so stupid at times that a book that is that influential that you would not spend time reading about it, you know? And I was thinking about that. Like, imagine a class on maybe just the Ten Commandments, you know, in the United States. And as a student taking that, I heard a story about, this was in Newsweek, where there was a, a student who said that he took a class And they were discussing the commandments, kind of just as literature, and he decided that I am just going to obey one of these commands for the next month. And he said, oh my gosh, like my life was different from just obeying a command. And that's one of the things about Scripture is that it is a powerful book. And when we start reading it, it starts reading us. Like it exposes our hearts and our thoughts, our motivations. And so... um, you know, it is one of those, gosh, one of those pieces of literature, this collection of stories based on eyewitness accounts, all these different types of perspectives that, boy, when people really come in contact with it, it changes us. So, um, we have an opportunity here, like in the U.S., even though we tend to stay away from the Bible when it comes to the public school system, but we just have a great opportunity to study Scripture and at least get to know it. And so we have been like kind of focusing on a few verses in the college group, and one of the um, one of the verses that we have been talking about is Colossians 4, 5, which is what? Make the most of every opportunity, you know, and we have a great opportunity. See, they listen, okay? That's great. 
right? Very short attention span, right? But we listen. And so um, we have an opportunity here that sometimes we just don't realize. And so I was in Russia in 1990 and was downstairs in the lobby, and this older gentleman came in. I was about 22, I think, maybe 21, 22 at the time. And this guy, maybe in his 60s, came up to me. He said, are you one of the Christians? And because he had heard that there was a hockey team there, and uh, this, is, this is in Leningrad, um, it's gorgeous, beautiful. And so that's where we were at. Um, we were not in that church, but we were in a building close by there. And I said, yes, I am. I'm one of those Christians. He said, oh, I've, I, oh. And he got so excited. And he said, I have been reading, I have a Bible. I have been reading it. And can you answer some of my questions? And I said, absolutely. You know, and so he said, I'll wait for you, I'll see you tonight, whatever. And so we went on our day, we had a long day, 14, 15 hours preaching in the streets, all kinds of things during the day. Came back that night, go up the, hotel, um, go up the elevator, step out of the elevator, turn to the right, look down, and there he is. And I've told this story before, he's sitting like ab- crisscross applesauce, that's the new way they say it, um, in front of... Indian style, okay? Native American style. No, who knows? And so sitting in front of my room, and then, you know, he looks at me, and Jim, you know, I've been waiting for you, you know. And sure enough, I mean, we had an incredible conversation. And to hear him piece together, um, in his accent and in his, like, childlike excitement. He had been reading the book of John. And so there were certain questions, and he said, when the author is saying this, is he speaking about Jesus or himself? Who does he mean in in this sense? He had all these questions listed out. And it was incredible to see that on his own, that the Spirit had worked, and he had understood the gospel really, really closely. Like, he was this close to becoming a Christian. And as I shared the gospel with him, his, his like, eyes, he just teared up, and he was really emotional. And to be honest, I don't know exactly what was going on at that time. I just knew that God was doing something right then, and I was kind of witnessing it, and I was wondering how many years he had been waiting to have this conversation. And one thing I learned at that time was that nobody is safe. God can get to anybody, anywhere. (laughs) And just a 21-year-old kid, I'm sitting there with this man, and I'm thinking, something is happening here. The verse in 2 Timothy 3, it says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, <clears throat> rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we're going to spend some important time discussing the most powerful and basic truths of scripture, and we're going to delve into what the early followers believed and then what set them apart from every other religious system that was out there on the market, okay? So first, 
the early believers had to essentially put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we believe. They had to develop a creed because as these Jesus communities were popping up, like starting up all over, they had to define what they believed a little more clearly and develop these creeds, okay? So we've you, some of you that maybe have studied church history, you've heard of the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. This is how these things arose because at that time, very much like today, there were lots of competing and swirling ideas going on at that time. And they needed to say, this is who we are, this is what we believe, and we don't believe this. And second, with these truths. We want this to last a lifetime for you all. Like a deeply grounded, rooted faith. Not just give you some feel-good, positive thinking that sustains you for a couple months during a difficult time in your life. But something that's deep that you can develop and get rooted in and that will stand the test of time, based on what God says and not what we determine that it will be. As humans, we have this penchant for kind of developing our own theology, where it tends to approve of whatever we approve of, and it becomes a little more like idolatry. We kind of worship our own made-up faith. We worship ourselves in a lot of ways. Just read a survey. George Barna is this research group that I spend a lot of time kind of studying and reading about their findings. And a survey that just came out two weeks ago was that amongst Christians, this is not non-Christians, but amongst Christians, um, and this is, man, this is not surprising to me, but somewhat disturbing. Amongst Christians, according to Barna Research, Half of Christians surveyed feel that it is wrong to evangelize and tell people about Jesus. That it's wrong. Matthew 28, like the Great Commission, this thing that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, and the disciples were, were strategizing and deciding to go, what, like, where are we going next? And Paul was was picking off cities, and they were giving their lives to tell people about Jesus that now in America, half of those that say they follow Jesus would say, that's not a good thing to do. We have got to get back to the creed, to what really matters. Simply left to our own devices, we'll create a faith that's not biblical. We will create one that's convenient and soft and tolerant of our own sin, whatever. And this series is really about believing truth, and that changes everything. I think that's why Paul was so adamant about reminding the new Jesus followers of truth. He knew that that is what's going to sustain us in the dark times. It's what's going to encourage us when we're down and we're anxious. It's what's going to reassure us 
and give us hope when we're overwhelmed. 1 John 5, 13 says, these, says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, guess, pray, wonder, strive, become really religious, and maybe hope that you're there. Like Dawn was saying, she didn't know that. She had a religious background, and still, when they asked her that question, if you had died in that car accident, where have you been? I don't know. Well, Scripture tells us that those of us that know Jesus have eternal life. It's past tense. You already have it. It has begun. That's why, like, reminding ourselves of these truths is so important. <clears throat> Paul was really strong on these basics of the faith but he, because he knew that without... Um, like without holding on to those, if we didn't hold firm, that we would end up walking back into what he calls slavery. The slavery of religious rules and pride and boasting about what we do or what we don't do or just being controlled by sin once again. And that can happen like insidiously and quickly. And Paul noticed that right away with the Galatians. So there's this kind of this area, um, this group of churches, and they had come to Jesus and they were following him. And then he says this, and this is like within just about 15 to 20 years, some theologians would say, maybe even less. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. A little later, Galatians 4, 8 through 11, Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves <clears throat> Excuse me, to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. They were missing the point. He doesn't want them to go back there. And these kind of things just creep in at times. And we as Jesus followers, we need to be wise. We need to be aware that just a little bit of untruth can slowly make its way into our thinking and, and trip us up. Like Jesus said, like beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, those religious teachers. Just a little yeast in there, it ruins the bread. Just a little mixed in and it can ruin us. So let's be wary and let's be wise and let's stand firm on what we believe. Let's remind ourselves of this truth that we know Jesus and He has freed us from this slavery. Allison and I, you know, um, we've been following Christ for 25 to 30 years, something like that. Um, <clears throat> we have friends that have really just kind of walked away from some basic tenets of the faith. 
And, um, and with some, it's kind of just been a, a, a slow kind of move. And unfortunately, now their lives, they're reaping that. And it's kind of train wrecks, really, to be honest. But it, it just happened slowly over the years. And it's difficult to see the pain that they're going through. So hopefully this series really helps us become grounded. And I just think that's part of following Jesus, okay? Anybody here golfed before? Raise your hands if you've golfed. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I grew up golfing. Golfing is the most frustrating, horrible sport ever, okay? I'm just going to tell you. We were talking about this morning, you know, and I was like, Here's how you describe it. So the guys, you know, these guys play guitar. They, they're, they're playing their chords. They don't even think about it anymore. I said, you know what golf is like? Imagine you play the guitar, and then the next time you come up and play that guitar, you can't play at all. You're terrible. You can't remember a chord. It's like you've never played before. That's what golf is. It's a terrible sport. If anybody says, hey, it's so fun, you just paid 50, bu- 50 bucks Wasted five hours of your life and got frustrated. (laughs) Yeah, I'll sign up for that. That's great. Jeez. Anyways, so the people that say that, I don't know. They're delusional. But but I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, you have these pro golfers, and sometimes all of a sudden, like, they just, they lose, the wheels just fall off and they're terrible. They can't do anything right. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they're playing really well again. And they'll ask them, like, what happened? And sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I was talking to Bob on the golf tee, and he shared this little, like, just this basic thing that I have been, like, I've known for decades, and I've gotten away from it. And sometimes it'll just be, like, a really basic move that they have just kind of forgotten and it's undermined their whole game. And so these are big truths that we do not want to forget. Because they're constantly going to have to be drawn on in our lives. Constantly. Matthew 7 says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Um, The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. All right, um, I have a ton here, and I can tell by our time that we're a little bit behind, so I'm going to... either cut some out or I'm going to add this to the teaching next week. But we're not going to fully, like if you're like, was that all of it? It's not. There's more coming. Um, But we're going to start right at the beginning in Genesis 1, verse uh, 26 through 27. And we're going to talk about who is this entity that created us and what are they like? Okay? They. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in 
our likeness. We're going to talk about that. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. First thing, we have an intelligent, purposeful, intentional author and creator who is outside of time and space. Okay? According to Scripture, God speaks things into being without any pre-existing materials. Okay? The, the uh, Latin term for that is ex nihilo, with nothing. No pre-existing materials. That means that the Creator God has power over His creation. He is not part of the creation. He did not and was not created. Doesn't have a beginning. He has always existed. He's not temporal. He's eternal. That is different than other faith systems that are out there where this God is part of the creation. The Christian God, the Judeo-Christian God, is separate and above His creation. In other words, He was here first. We are His invention, not the other way around. Since then, lots of stuff has come down the pike where we are the inventor of this God. That's not what the Bible teaches. So, with that, creation is subject to Him. Other religious systems, like I said, or leaders are byproducts of human invention. Instead, the God of the Bible is the inventor. Very different teaching than other things that were out there. Because of that, creation bows to Him. We are His. He's powerful. He knows us intimately. He's intelligent and purposeful. He's not random and meaningless. And that means your life has meaning and it matters. What is he like? Is God distant and cold and impersonal? In Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. As the great artist, he stood back and observed it and he was pleased with it. And as Genesis unfolds, we see a present involved in a relational Father creating us, who interacts with us, and He is no absent Father. Instead, who are the ones that hide? We do. We are the ones that hide from Him. So He is not this untouchable, transcendent, distant God that is above us that we can't know like Islam would teach. But the truth of the Christian message is that He wants to walk with us. When you're driving around the neighborhood at the end, you know, at the end of an evening, and you see a couple walking hand in hand, and you think, "Oh, that's a, 
It's neat to see them sharing in their relationship together. That's how we're described with God in Genesis, walking with Him in the cool of the garden. That's a relational God who wants to be with us and spend time with us and talk about our day and have that type of intimate relationship, not a cold and personal God that we have no idea if we even know Him. That is not the God of Scripture. I love that when we look at Genesis as though is that even though we're guilty, he immediately goes to work to restore us, to cover our guilt, and to make walking with him without shame possible again. That is not a cold, impersonal God. That is a God that loves every single one of us and wants us. I'm going to finish with this. In verse 26, back in Genesis, we see one of the huge tenets of Christianity that had huge implications. And I'm probably going to start next week a little more with this. But it's caused tons of controversy over the years. Um, and that is the verse that I referenced where I said, Let, let's make him in our image in Genesis. That's the first reverence, reference to the Godhead, okay? It's kind of a crazy theological term of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working interdependently. We have the Lord creating, we have the Spirit hovering over the creation, and in John we're told that Jesus was present at the creation, and He has given credit for creation too. He talks about being there in the book of John. And so what we see is this God who is a relational being who works in concert with himself and provides a model for us as his body, that we get to work together. We're on a mission together. So there's a lot that goes with that. And so we're going to talk about this term, the Trinity, that some that would criticize and say the Trinity, it's not even in there. It's not even in your Bible. Guess what? It's not. It's not. The concept, the principles, the way God operates, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in concert, separate, and still one, it's all throughout Scripture. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more, and we're going to talk about why the Trinity is so important for us to understand and how it it's so unique and how it can change. Like, I mean, it, there's so much that we're going to need to unpack there, okay? And I apologize, we're going a little bit, a little bit late. Um, and so we will get into that next week, okay? On your blue cards, if there are some questions that you have that maybe got raised today where you're like, hey, can you talk about this next week or whatever, um, feel free. Put them on there, throw them in 
the, um, the clear box on the way out. And then hopefully maybe I can address some of that um, this next week. All right, guys, thanks.